Cool. Well, as people are coming in, we are continuing our sermon series in the Lord's Prayer, looking at the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 9, no, chapter 6, verse 9 is where we'll be this morning. And uh, what we're doing is we, we look through the Lord's Prayer. Um, it's a famous prayer, and it's a little bit like me and Chloe have this song. It's a song that only she knows, and she's sung it. I think it's Santana who sings it. But I, I, I honestly have never heard it before. But she sings it, and she's not, she's not here. She's not the best singer, and so I'm not con- fully convinced that um, it, she sings it right. But now I sing it, and I sing her version of it, and we, we just, it, it's, I won't sing it because it, it won't make any sense. But the other day, I actually heard it for real life, and it was nothing, nothing like the version that I've been singing for five years now. And I think the Lord's Prayer is a little bit like that for some of us. For some of us, we might actually not know it if you've kind of brought up in a secular home. I'm from the UK, and, and um, when I went to primary school, we sang the Lord's Prayer every uh, Friday. We had an assembly, the whole school together, and we sang the Lord's Prayer. Um, and uh, I remember it to this day, the tune. I then went to a kind of a Jewish ethos uh, high school, and so we didn't sing the Lord's Prayer uh, in, in that school. Um, but in England, it's quite common to know it, but maybe it's not you. And yet for some of us, it might be a little over common. It might be a little bit where it's, it's kind of lost some of its meaning. And what we want to do over the next few weeks is, is examine it, reorient ourselves around it, see, see how it fits um, in the context of, of what Jesus is speaking in, and also kind of how we can use this to become uh, a more mature people of prayer our goal here is, is as God, good first, to be, to be a, a prayerful people, both individually but corporately. Um, as Josh said last week, as he looked at our Father, it doesn't say, Jesus doesn't say, my Father. He doesn't say, when you pray, pray my Father. He says, our Father. It's a corporate thing, or it's at least, as we pray it individually, we, we've got a corporate view on the prayer, a corporate kind of emphasis and so I'm hoping that that's a theme that keeps coming across. And this morning, we're going to look at um, kind of the second four words. Last week, we looked at the first four words of the prayer, and now we're going to look at the second four words. We're going to move on a little bit quicker pace after that. Um, don't worry, it's not four words a time. Um, but we do want to dig in. So this morning, as we, we look, we're reading um, specifically, Hallowed Be Your Name. I want to start with a, a little quote. Yeah, I think you're thinking, you've already started and you've said quite a lot. I'm starting with this quote. It's by a guy called A.W. Tozer, who's a, an American, or was, an American writer, thinker, theologian, and pastor, uh, kind of in the 50s and 60s. And he wrote this, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It's quite an extreme quote. The most important thing about you isn't your job, your family status, whether you're a father, a husband, a mother, a daughter, a sister. It isn't your identity. It isn't your your favorite sports team. It's not what you're good at or or what your gifts are. The most important thing about us, according to A.W. Tozer, is what comes to our mind when we think about God. I, I mean, I 
don't know how much I agree, and I've stretched that quote quite a lot in my mind to think of ways in which I think, oh, what, what, but, but it got me thinking, what is the first thing I think about? What, what do I think about God? And what does that say about us? You see, the Lord's Prayer comes in the middle of Jesus' teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. And you might have heard of that before. The Sermon on the Mount is a big block. It's three chapters long at the beginning of Matthew, chapter 5 through 7, where Jesus basically gives his manifesto. His disciples are there all in front of him, and he says, this is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. This is what it means to be in my kingdom. This is what kingdom people look like. Here is my teaching. If you want to look at Jesus' words and his teaching, Sermon on the Mount is like the best place to go. What does Jesus think it means to be a believer? What does Jesus think it means to, to follow in his footsteps? Sermon on the Mount. Now, interestingly, the Sermon on the Mount is very structured. It's almost as though Jesus is a master communicator because it's so beautifully uh, structured in uh, what's called a chiastic structure. What that means is that Jesus is kind of building up ideas in a sort of a symmetry and what's at the center is often the thing that wants to be emphasized in chiastic structures. It's a really common feature in scripture. What's at the middle is the most kind of important thing. It's the priority. So often when we speak and when I speak this morning, I'm saving my best points till the end. That's kind of how we do it. You know, you save that in a film, you watch a film, there's three acts, and the last act is the, is the big one, right? It's that where, that's where the final battle happens. But in, in Jesus' day and in the, in the Hebrew scriptures, it's actually, it's actually in the middle. Um, and, and what we see is right in the middle, you guessed it, is the Lord's Prayer. I've actually got a, a picture that can describe some of the, shows you this structure. As you see, and it's very detailed. Very, uh, we're not going to go into that much detail, I promise. Um, but as you see, the structure, as it goes up, it, it, the pinnacle, the apex, is in the Lord's Prayer. In other words, Jesus is at least saying that part of his manifesto, his priorities for his people, as they walk in discipleship with him, if you want to follow me, says Jesus, prayer is at the heart. And this prayer that I'm going to teach you is, is an encapsulation. It's a distillation. It's a real reducing down. You know, when you make a gravy or a sauce, you boil it and get the flavors all together. This distills Jesus's priorities. Uh, one author says this, Jesus teaches us his priorities in the form of a prayer because he intends us to pray those priorities into reality. When we pray something over and over again, when we commit to saying it out loud, individually or corporately, it changes something about us, something like a, a discipline that we can kind of work into our life begins to shape the very core of our being. That's what Jesus is saying here when he says, when you pray, pray like this. When you pray, pray like this. These are his priorities So, the actual prayer is itself beautifully structured, as you could imagine. It comes in two parts. The first part of the prayer is, is what I would call Godward. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Three petitions. We'll talk about that in a moment. And the second part of the prayer is Usward. It's 
give us this day our daily bread. Give, uh, forgive us our trespasses and deliver us from the evil one. There's, the first half is Godward, the second half is usward. And this beautifully mirrors what Jesus says later on in, in Matthew, where the scribes come and say, hey, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your mind, body, soul, heart, and strength. And he gets to do a double parter because he's Jesus. And love your neighbor as yourself. It's both. And here we see that just overflowing in a beautiful poetic prayer. So that's, I hope, grounds this prayer for us a little bit, seeing the structure. And I think the part of the, the point here is Jesus is saying, out of this first part, this Godward focus, flows usward activity. Out of turning and fixing our eyes onto God, outflows a life lived in the service of others. So we heard last week that we come to this prayer and Jesus already just gives such a, in this one word, Father, such a, a foundation of teaching that means we come to God as Father. But the next phrase, hallowed be your name, is what we're going to focus on this morning. Because in this phrase, in these four words, is a universe of meaning and application and beautiful meditation for our hearts for a lifetime. But it's, an, it's already a bit of a roadblock for me. One, because of this word hallowed. We, we don't use this. This is a strange, odd, old word. And your translations, if you're uh, speaking in a different language normally or reading the Bible in a different language, might help you out here because English doesn't kind of help us. Whereas your translations might. It's interesting, in Swedish, uh, we get, oh no, if I say it, will you forgive me if I, if I pronounce I was looking at my sweet. Um, interesting, in the, in the New Living Bible, Swedish New Living, it says, But then in the Folk Bible, it says, And I don't know if there's a fierce rivalry between these two translations, but the Folk Bible wins this morning. Because I always thought when I came to this uh, passage, it was, Oh God, Father in heaven, your name is holy. That's what I thought it meant. But it doesn't mean that. The word hallowed, I'm, not that that's wrong, it's very much right. And it's very much the emphasis of what Jesus is saying. But what he's actually saying is, God in Father, may your name be holified. We don't use the word, we don't have the word holified. We would say sanctified. They mean the same thing. One's from the Greek, one's from the Latin. English likes to mix them in. Um, but, it, you know, it, it, we see that in perhaps the Portuguese translation. Where's my Portuguese friends? It's, uh, it's, it's sanctificado, right, Clayton? Sanctified be your name. Will your name be seen as, understood as, revealed to be holy? Eugene Peterson, in his kind of paraphrase of the Bible, translates it this way. Our Father in heaven, reveal who you are. Reveal who you are. So helpful. It's the first petition. There's uh, six, kind of how you count them. The first three, reveal who you are. May your kingdom come, your will be done. So in, in short, Jesus is asking us to pray
Father in heaven, reveal your holiness to me as I'm praying it, to others, to this city, to this world, and across all of creation. Before we get to anything else in this prayer, Jesus wants his disciples to pray for God to be glorified, for his holiness to be on display, for his name to be lifted up and seen as beautiful and brilliant and glorious. So we're going to get to why God wants that, why Jesus is asking us to do that first and foremost. That's where we're going to land this morning. But I want to look at, again, this word holiness, because I think that even holiness or sanctified or consecrated, these are religious words that carry baggage or can be confusing. So we're going to spend a little moment just thinking about holiness. Um, I have uh, got that up there. Holiness, the Greek, got to get some Greek in occasionally, is hagiazo. And um, it means to be kind of consecrated or, or set apart. Set apart is a really helpful way to understand this word. Set apart. Back in my... Um, family home when I grew up in Liverpool. Uh, when it's time for dinner time, we got the plates and the cutlery and, you know, the cups and the sauces. But at Christmas, we have special plates. There's a special cupboard with very special plates. They only come out for special occasion, occasions. They only come out when we've got guests. We've got these crystal glasses. I remember them vividly. Awful glasses. They look horrible, but they were my mum's special crystal glasses that only came out for Christmas. And this tablecloth that came out. Oh, man, I could draw it for you. So special was the ceremony where we put out the, the, the special cutlery, the special tableware. I don't know if you have that. But that's being, they're set apart. They're special. They're for a special occasion. Or perhaps... There is one use of the word hallowed in English that we might still hear occasionally, the thought of the idea of hallowed ground. Have you heard that before? Um, I always, I, since, as soon as I hear it, I think of someone who really loves sport, going to their, their stadium. For Josh, it would be White Hart Lane, nearly. A few years ago. Oh, dear. Dang it. Dang it. I thought I was going to win some points there. Nope. It would be, for me, I'm a, well, I'm kind of a Liverpool fan. It'd be Anfield. And it'd be, you could imagine, if you like sport, you could perhaps imagine, I try to imagine this, stepping out on the grass, the hallowed ground, where these amazing games that I've been watching have been taking place. Or perhaps if you're a history buff and you go to this beautiful cathedral where kings and queens were coronated, and you're thinking, wow, just transport my mind back to this ceremony. I mean, it's just stone and pews and bits of glass. But because of what took place there, it's hallowed ground. It's set apart. It's special. This idea of holiness is about a uniqueness. It's about an otherness. And actually, God represents that, defines the word holiness in a way that makes ultimate sense. Because... All of the things I described in my silly analogies are just physical things that we can touch and feel or go to or see. Or They're all created. They're all matter. They're all part of this world. Everything that we could imagine 
actually, on this earth, the things that we love, the things that we could hold dear, the things we write our name on, the things that we put up on the shelf to display because they're special to us, all of it just exists here on this tiny rock in outer space. The orbits are kind of small star, one of billions of stars in this galaxy alone, which is a medium-sized galaxy of millions, perhaps billions of, of galaxies and nebula in a universe of which God spoke into being with a word. He is the ultimate, unique, other, separate one. He's ultimately the definition of holy. Like precious diamonds, there's this one diamond. I can't remember what it's called now. I think it's the heart of Africa. It's the big, world's biggest diamond. It's like the size of a fist. Could you imagine being the person to find the world's biggest diamond? There's only one of it. By definition, there's only one God. He's utterly unique, precious, to be treasured, beautiful. God, in his holiness, is, so he's, so he's holy, he's unique, he's set apart, but also all of his other attributes, all of the other things about him are holy too because they're the perfect version of that thing. It's hard to describe God in a way that it's not hard to describe anything else. It can be difficult to describe things, but often we describe them by comparison. I think of, you know, how would I describe a cat to someone who's never seen a cat? Well, it's like a dog, but smaller and really temperamental. And, uh, you know, not, not loyal like a dog, but maybe a bit more kind of does its own thing. and Its tails are longer. You, you know, I could go on describing comparison. How can anything compare to God when he stands outside of everything else upon which we could ever draw a comparison? And so when we think about God, we're, we're stuck with a dilemma, a problem, because the only way we can describe him is by our understanding of things. So when we call God loving, it's our understanding of what love is. Sadly, if our understanding of love is really bad, if our understanding of what love is is tainted by heartbreak and abuse and, 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 and all sorts of painful moments in our past, the idea of a loving God is going to be hard to fathom. This is true of, of, of justice. If you've had a life of, being, of seeing the injustice that goes on, you could struggle with this concept. And so it's really important when we think about understanding God, we realize that we have to, there's a limitation to our, the only way that we can do it is limited. Because God's love is a holy love, it's a set-apart love, it's a unique love, it's the source and inspiration behind what we think love is. We can't define love, the love of God, on our experience. We have to let God define that and then allow it to shape our experiences. Remember, what comes into our mind when we think about God it's the most important thing about us. The core idea behind holiness is God's absolute moral purity. God's not only perfectly good, he's the very source and standard of goodness. 
That means that goodness has an objective permanence because he defines it. Without God setting the standard, it's really hard to say what goodness could even be. What really is love if it's not set and defined by something outside of our ability to experience it? And I'll make this point again, but I want to say it right here in case it's what's going on in your mind. If it's outside our our ability to experience it, because God is outside of our ability to experience him, the only way that we can is if he chooses to step into our life and reveal himself to us. And the Christian message, the gospel is, Jesus has come, God has come and spoken to his people. He's given us his word and ultimately in Jesus has come and lived a life amongst us. The the unattainable holiness of God and ununderstandable, inexpressible, unfathomable holiness and beauty of God, he's revealed to us. He shared it as best he can with fallen human, with our tiny minds. He's doing his best to reveal and show himself his unique, incomparable, absolute beauty and perfection. He's wholly holy, as in completely whole. I really like that. Holy, holy. But he's not just holy, holy. The Bible calls him holy, holy, holy. In Isaiah 6, verse 3, there's this scene where there's this amazing moment where the prophet Isaiah is transported in his mind to the heavens, and he sees these gigantic, crazy angels, massive towering. They're so big, their voice shakes the foundations of the world. And what do they cry? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And in Revelation 4, John, uh, the picks this up in his vision of uh, in 4 verse 8. He says this, And I saw four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes, all around and within. Crazy. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. In the Bible, I talked about uh, chiasms. That's a thing that they use, a structure that's used. Another tool that's used by biblical authors to provide emphasis is to repeat something. So in the garden, God, God creates and it's good. And then when he creates Adam and Eve, we, our Bibles translate it as very good, but it's good, good. It's not just good, it's good, good. When Jesus talks to his disciples, he says, in my, Old King James, verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you. It's not just true, guys, it's really true. Well, three times is reserved only for this attribute of God. He's holy, holy, holy. He's ne- only this attribute. One quote, one um, commentator says this, this is the greatest emphasis that can be put on anything or anyone in Scripture. And it's telling us that this is the most important thing about God. God is holy, holy, holy. This is the only attribute mentioned in the Scripture three times. So to finish, why does it matter, final point, why does it matter that God is holy? Because if God's holy, he's big. He's big. 
And that means whatever situation we're in, whatever thing we could face, whatever problems we could come up against, wherever we might find ourselves, we don't have a small, weak God who can't deal with it. He's big. And of course, then, we need to think about unanswered prayer, and we need to grapple with that, and that's not easy. But it, it's not the case that he's too small to deal with it. He's big. He's holy. Holy God, a holy God is objectively true. He creates objective meaning. We're in a, a post-Christian, um, what's the word, post-modern world in the West where truth is relativized. There's, uh, everything is kind of up for grabs. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. We want to just live our best life. You do you. Follow your heart. That's the gospel of our generation. That's how I was raised on Disney films and the like which I love, don't get me wrong, but be open to that's what the message is. And we have a generation now that is so confused because the, the, the foundation of objective truth, of there being something outside of myself that could be true, by which I could, I could try and live my life guided on, is gone. The foundation's gone. So then we have generation of um, people all over the world that are just so confused, living for and living in ways that, that just, we're just burning with anger at one another because how can you believe that when surely this is right? It's, it's, a, it's a mayhem out there. It's mayhem in here. It's, it's, it's why we need a holy God who's objectively outside true outside of a reality and can define a truth. Because a holy God speaks truth from eternity, not just the latest opinions. He provides real meaning in a world where meaning has become meaningless. And a holy God is better than, is greater than, by definition, all of the little gods that we fill our lives with. If you've never read um, or, or heard any teaching by the, the late pastor theologian, um, Timothy Keller, he speaks on this so brilliantly that each and every one of us is a worshiper, whatever it, it might be, from, from the atheist to the agnostic to the believer to the theist, to wherever we are, all of humanity, we are created to worship, and so we worship. We just put something at the center of our life and we say, that's what I'm living for. So it could be money, it could be materialism, it could be uh, esteem, it could be other people's approval. And so when that's the case, well, if, if it's materialism, it's money, we surround our life with things and we're quick to show off our, our status symbols, the latest watch, the latest gadgets, the latest things. When it's uh, people's approval, we're going to surround ourselves with people that praise us and we're going to avoid the people that say it how it is and bring us down or the negative people. We want people who are, going to, uh, who are going to lift up the way I've chosen to live my life, not people who are going to challenge it. But none of these things satisfy. If it's materialism, you'll never be satisfied. There's always something better. There's a new phone every week. It's there's something more each time. And so you can never be satisfied. You just need to hear that that's an amazing quote by Jim Carrey, isn't it? Who says, I've tasted everything, all of the drugs, the sex, the, the wealth, all of it, and nothing will make you happy. 
None of it satisfies. If it's living for approval, then of course, you're going to be let down as well because you know, you're not going to get it all the time consistently and you're not going to deserve it all the time consistently. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. It would seem, he's an English author, and he wrote the Narnia series if you've ever read them. He's also a theologian and a great thinker. He wrote this, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased What's on offer, friends, by a holy God who's made himself known to his creation is the person, the, the, the entity that created all of the things that we, that we like, that we love, all of those things that can be really good, material things can be fantastic, sex, friendship, meaning, oh, all of these things are fantastic, but what's better is knowing the one who inspired it and created it all. Because then it finds its context. What's amazing then about God's holiness and his utterly unique beauty, his splendor, his moral perfection, is that in his goodness and in his grace, he's made himself accessible through Jesus. The prayer begins, our Father, his imminence is his eminence, his relational, his closeness comes before his eminence, his holiness, his otherness. And as our Father, he knows that seeing and knowing and savoring his unique, wonderful beauty and holiness contrasts with all of those other things that compete for our affection. So if I can uh, invite the band up, in a minute we're going to take communion um, if we have a band, they're going to... It's Verity and myself. I'll go there in a minute. <laughs> um, we're going to take communion in a moment. And as we do, what we're going to do is we'll, we'll take it and we'll come and we'll bring it back to our seats. And we'll, we'll stand and, and we'll read this prayer, this amazing prayer out loud together as a, a symbol of acting out the unity and the togetherness and the family relationship that we have as we pray it. But what we're praying and what we're hoping, what we're, what we're longing for this morning, what I'm longing for, what I'm praying for, is that we would catch a glimpse of who God is in his holiness and in doing so, just like the prayer begins, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, all the other things fall into place. On, um, on, on Friday, we had a prayer meeting. We prayed together, and, and Roger shared uh, kind of a prophetic word with us, and it was great. In fact, the whole time of prayer was basically this message, and so I was so encouraged. But what Roger brought was that that God was going to give us, actually, a fresh vision of his holiness, of God's holiness. That's what he brought. And so that's what we're praying. That's what we're going to sing this morning. And that's what we're going to do. I want to just uh, end then by saying, 
if we could, if we could stand, we're going to take communion in a moment. God's holiness can seem like a big, faraway thing. It can feel frightening. It's like the sun, burning hot, blazing bright. We wouldn't want the sun any closer. It would burn us up. And yet we need it. It's the source of our life. For plants, you know, we know even as it's starting to go away, as we head, head towards winter, we're so aware of how precious and important the sun is. God is holy and unique and utterly set apart, and yet he is close, and he's with us. And through Jesus, the Son, we step into the presence of God. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, we are brought to the Father. So Lord, we pray this morning, would you fill our eyes with a vision of your glory, your beauty, your majesty, your goodness, not our version of those things, but as they, as they truly are, Lord, we pray, show us your holiness, show us your unique value, cause it to be the source of our motivation as we live our lives for you. Lord, and I pray if there's those of us here that, that don't know this yet, don't see this, have never caught a glimpse of, of your beauty, your splendor, your majesty, your greatness, Lord, I pray, reveal it, because only you can. Only you can show yourself to us. I pray that we would see in Jesus, in your body broken, your blood shed for us, your great and unique love for us, that you would take our place and you would cause us to be set apart, to be your own. You write your name upon our heads, across our hearts. Thank you, Lord. Amen. So we're going to take communion. Like I said, it's, there's a, a station over there where you can take it, or there's one at the back of the room. And the way we're going to do it, sometimes we take communion where we are and we pray. But this morning, I'd like us to uh, go and get the communion and come back. And we'll hold it together and we'll say the Lord's Prayer. And then we'll, uh, we'll take it together. Is that okay? So our band will play and we can go. Thank you.